Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I read this very interesting article about a newer version of the Bible that had been recently published. Uh, this is not going to be one of the more professional or accurate levels of most of the Bibles that you've probably looked at at some point in your life. But not too long ago, somebody came out with a version of Scripture called Bible Emoji. Uh, Bible Emoji where they translate the Bible, not just into words, but those little emojis that you use on your phone. And uh, I wanna show you a couple of these. Let's take a few verses from Genesis 1. Actually, uh, what I wanna do is play a little bit of a game with you. So would you stand up if you're able? I wanna ask everybody who can to stand up right now. And I want you to find a partner for this, one other person, and it's got to be a stranger, somebody you don't know. If you have to walk across the room, do it. Find a stranger. Two people, and uh, introduce yourself, introduce yourself, make sure you get each other's names. This is a chance to meet a new acquaintance here at Crosswinds. All right, now here is what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do. One of you is going to be person A, and the other one of you is going to be person B, and I'm going to put a verse up on the screen, and person A is going to read the verse uh, with the emojis, trying to decipher the emojis to person B, all right? You got it? This is going to be easy. It's a piece of cake right here. Here we go. Person A, person A, I want you to try and read this right here to person B. Go ahead, go for it. All right. Okay. All right, here's what it says. Here's what it says. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. How many of you got this one right or pretty close? Um, how many of you said the light was thumbs up? That's, okay. All right, uh, now I'm gonna increase the difficulty level a little bit. So uh, person B, turn to person A, and try to read this right here to person A. Go for it. Okay, okay. Let's see how you did. This one is harder, let's see how you did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God. How many of you said the ghost of God? Moved upon the face of the waters. How many of you said the waves? or the tsunamis, okay? And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, not sunrise, and the darkness he called night. How did you do on that one? Anybody get most of those right? All right, give you, you gave yourselves a round of applause. Have a seat, find your way back to your seat. 
Well, the reason that somebody created this Bible, somebody anonymous, uh, somebody who simply goes by this name right here, by the way, uh, this person created this as a way to make the Bible more interesting to younger believers. And they actually said this. They said, hopefully, puts a little levity and fun into the text. Hopefully, people use it for good. I think this makes sharing a Bible verse with your friends easier and more interesting. And I love it. I love that somebody was devoting some time and effort to interest people in the, in the Bible who might not otherwise be interested. I'm a big fan of anybody coming up with anything creative to make the Bible more accessible, get more people reading it. But I've got a question that I've been asking. Why is the Bible not more interesting to us in the first place? It seems to me, even among people who believe in the Bible and, and, and like think that God is communicating to us through the Bible, considering what we believe about it, you would think we would be way more interested. And, uh, I don't know. Sometimes it is the last thing that I will pick up in my free time. I have things I find way more interesting. There's an old story about a man whose grandfather gave him and his bride an expensive Bible as a wedding gift. You know the kind I'm talking about, leather, where you can get your, your, your name imprinted in gold on the cover? Uh, and I promise you, it was not something that this couple registered for, like a toaster or a blender. Uh, but they took it, and they thanked their grandfather for the wedding gift. And then they left it in the box, and they never opened it. For months after the wedding, the grandfather kept asking them if they had liked the Bible that he got them. And, and it was weird that he kept asking because they had written him a thank you note. They even thanked him in person, but somehow he could not let it lie. He just kept asking about the Bible. Well, finally, the couple got curious enough one day to like go open the Bible. And so they went to the closet where they had kept it and they pulled it out of the box and they opened the Bible and they found that their grandfather had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of Genesis and then 20 more at the beginning of every book after that. 66 books in the Bible, $1,320 in all. And he knew if he didn't keep asking, they were never gonna find it. Again, I'll just ask, why is this book sometimes so hard for us to be interested in? Or is it that it is interesting, but it's hard to believe? It's hard to understand. This book that's been around in one form or another for thousands of years, it says some complicated things. And it says some things in 2022 that we would consider problematic. And it says some things that might go against science and what we know to be true today. And and sometimes when you read it, you're almost embarrassed to admit that it matters to your life because let's be honest, sometimes it reads like it's a fairy tale. Think about that. Adam and Eve live in a garden with two magical trees. Somewhere nearby, there's a talking serpent. Uh, to, to say that you base your faith and your life on a book that contains that stuff, that feels weird. And in the same book, we see God show up and chat with humans is if that's normal, is if that happens every single day to every single person. And later in the Bible, God parts a sea down the middle so that people can escape slavery, an entire sea. And in another book, fire comes out of the sky. And in another book, it, it talks about God slaying sea monsters. And I wonder if we're interested in the Bible, but we struggle with it because we know it's supposed to be taken seriously. And yet there is so much in it that feels like the sci-fi channel. Or there are things in the Bible that seem cruel. Laws and punishments that we would consider inhumane today, right? Entire groups of people destroyed or massacred. It, it, what reads 
is God's command. You know, that great miracle where God parted the Red Sea, you know he unparted it when the Egyptians were halfway through, right? Drowned an entire army. How do you call a God loving and then believe in a Bible that contains that? Or that story that the little girl mentioned where the flood covers the whole earth, a flood that God causes, everyone dies but eight people. What do you do with that? I wonder if one of the reasons that we struggle with the Bible so when we read it, instead of it bolstering our faith, it challenges it. Reading the Bible makes it harder to believe, not easier. But the problem itself becomes the Bible. You have to overcome the Bible to be a person of faith. The Bible turns into a problem, not an answer to your problem. And can I tell you, if there is one book in the Bible that people struggle with more than any other, it is the first one, Genesis. Can I tell you why we struggle with it? Because too often, we look to Genesis to answer questions that it was never meant to answer. We ask Genesis all of the wrong questions, and then we get upset when it doesn't answer them very well, or in ways that make sense to be true, uh, or make sense with what we know to be true today. We ask Genesis questions it was never meant to answer, and our plan over the next six weeks, we're gonna talk about the wrong questions we've been asking Genesis and why they are wrong. And we're gonna put those questions to bed so that instead of wrong questions we've been asking Genesis, we, wrong questions that lead to bad answers, we get the right lessons from Genesis. No more wrong questions, only right lessons. Because, because this book is inspired by God. It is breathed by him. There is life in the Bible for us, but we can't find that life if we don't do some work talking about the wrong questions we've been asking that have distracted us from the right lessons we're supposed to be learning, which leads me to today. Today, we're gonna look at Genesis 1 together, what we call the creation story. We're gonna go through Genesis in order over the next six weeks. We're not gonna read the whole thing. But the big things that we often struggle with each week, and the part we're going to look at today, there are a lot of wrong questions about. And that's too bad, because there is such a right lesson that God has for us in these first few chapters. Now, I need to tell you something. While today might feel a little bit academic, I've got to tell you, oh man, this has the potential to be so much more. And, and here's what I'm talking about. If you are someone listening right now who's had some chaos in your life today. You're somebody listening with some turmoil. If you've been through a series of events in your life that feel out of control, whether that's the last decade or the last week, and things have often not felt like they should be the way they've been, then God has a right lesson for you today in Genesis 1. And what if you've never seen it because you've been asking the wrong questions? We're gonna find the right lesson together. Hang in there through the academic part. It's gonna pay off, because God wants to speak to you in your situation today. In fact, you're gonna see what he spoke in Genesis 1. He didn't just speak it for those people thousands of years ago. He spoke it knowing you would need it today. We're gonna find the right lesson. To do that, we need to jump in and read some of Genesis 1. And actually, you already did. The emoji Bible part that we just read, that first chapter, uh, from the first chapter of Genesis, we're gonna read more from Genesis 1 and a little bit of 2. But before we do that, there are two things I need you to know about Genesis before we start. 
Okay? The first is that Genesis is an ancient story meant to tell one story. Now, this is important. I want to make sure you get that. So would you turn to somebody next to you and read them number one? Genesis is an ancient story meant to tell one story. Go ahead, tell them that. Here's what I mean by that, all right? It is not just a bunch of small and weird stories that stand on their own, which is how many of us who've been reading Genesis since we were kids have approached it. All these stories in this book are connected for one single, singular, bigger purpose. Now, it's, it's obviously okay to pick it up and read parts of that story without reading the rest, the many stories within it, but you've got to know those little stories were meant to be told within the larger context of Genesis, the larger story. Now, real quick, I keep using the word story, and that, that might be bugging some of you, because when you hear the word story, you might think of something that is fictional, and you might go, well, I think that Genesis is historical, and I just need to say, I don't mean that when I say story. I don't mean that it's either of those things. Um, a book about Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King is just as much a story as The Hunger Games or Star Wars. This is the story of God and his people. So please, when I say it's a story, I'm not saying that it's fiction. But, but, the fact that you might be wondering that speaks to a wrong question you've been asking. A wrong question, which is why I put the word ancient in this. I said up there, it is an ancient story. What did I mean by that? All right, part of our job as we read this story of Genesis is to read it through ancient eyes as opposed to modern ones. Ancient. Now, depending on what you may have been taught by somebody about the Bible at some point in your life, some of us might approach Genesis expecting that we're going to find a detailed account of history as if Genesis is a modern history textbook. This is not a modern book. And some of the wrong questions we ask and the bad answers we get, we get because we read it like it's a modern book, and it's not. It's an ancient book. You have to read it like one. Asking that question, is this history or is this fiction, this assumes there was a Barnes & Noble 2,000 years ago with sections called history and fiction, and books fell into neat categories. But Genesis is an ancient story. you got to read it as an ancient story if you're going to understand it properly. Um, real quick, there's an incredible book that I'm using as a resource as we do this series, and it, and it makes this point about story better than I ever could. It's called Genesis for Normal People by Peter Enns. He is a biblical scholar, a theologian. He's written some of the best books on the Bible you can find, and he goes into this idea of Genesis as story better than I ever could. All right, let me tell you the second thing that you need to know about Genesis. It is the who, the when, and the why. It really matters who wrote this story, when it was written, and why it was written. And those are not wrong questions. Those are important questions to ask. So let me do my best to give you some honest answers about this. And I'm going to start with who. I grew up in church hearing Genesis was written by Moses for a very long time. I'm talking centuries. Genesis and the next four books of the Bible had been assumed to have been written by Moses. Now, there are a few reasons for that. One, he becomes the main character in the first five books of the Bible. The other, there's a bunch of times in those books that God tells Moses, write this stuff down. Make sure you write this stuff down. And so for many, many years, people assume Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, because it's mostly about him, and he's the only one that we see writing. 
But if we're going to be honest, and, and I'm a pastor who feels like I owe it to you to be honest, there are problems with saying that Moses exclusively wrote these books. The first is, the first problem, and this is a big problem, one of those books he supposedly wrote records his death. And for Moses to have written this after he died, uh, I know Halloween's coming up, but I don't believe in a zombie Moses. You cannot write something <laughs> after you're dead. You cannot write about your own death. Now, there are multiple other reasons in the last 300 years that scholars have moved away from the idea that Moses was the sole author. We don't have time for me to go into all of them, but let me give you one more fun one, okay, fun one. In, Nova in Numbers 12, the writer says, now, Moses was a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. If Moses wrote that, would he describe himself that way? Would a truly humble person ever be able to say they're the most humble person on the face of the earth? It makes way more sense. Say somebody else wrote this at a later time describing Moses as humble. All right, the truth is, we don't know what person or what people wrote Genesis. It is anonymous. The Bible doesn't say this was written by so-and-so like other books of the Bible sometimes say. It's likely whoever wrote this took the writings of Moses that God told Moses to write and they used them to tell this story. But it's important to know it is not possible for it to just be the writings of Moses or even written at the time of Moses because of the way it talks about these events like they are the distant past which leads us to when. Scholars have come to decide that Genesis and the next four books of the Bible didn't come together until sometime after 539 BC. I want you to say that date with me because I think it's gonna come back in a few minutes and I wanna make sure you've got that date in your head. So can we say it together? 539 BC, which is actually about 700 to 1,000 years after Moses. Now I'm gonna tell you why that year is significant and believe me when I tell you 539, incredibly significant. But, but first, if you grew up like I did, believing that these books had to be written by Moses in the time, in the moment that these actual events were happening, I imagine you might be freaking out a little bit inside right now. What in the world is Chris doing? He's tearing apart our orthodox understanding of Genesis. Let me be very clear. For hundreds of years, all the way back to the time of Moses, these things had been written down. And also, there was oral tradition. These stories had been told to each other from parents to their children. I don't mean somebody made it up after 539 BC. I just mean something happened after 539 BC that caused God's people to say, we have got to write this stuff down. And what was that? What happened in 539 BC? And that is where we get to the why. Why was Genesis written? And in the why, we're gonna discover the wrong questions we've been asking and the right lessons God means for us to be getting. To tell you the why, I wanna read a little bit together from Genesis 1. We don't have time to read the whole chapter. I encourage you, go home and read it afterwards today, but let me show you some things in Genesis 1 that are gonna help us with the why. Genesis 1, 2. Uh, we saw this with the emoji Bible. Now, the earth was chaos and waste. Darkness was on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering upon the surface of the water. Okay, time out. It's interesting that I use the word right here. I show you a version that uses the word chaos. Chaos. Now, the actual word in Hebrew is a word that you may have heard, because every once in a while this word still gets used today. The word is tohu bohu. Tohu bohu. 
Would you say that word with me? Tohu Bohu. It sounds like a really trendy club in Las Vegas, Tohu Bohu. Actually, Tohu Bohu means chaos and confusion, which makes it sound even more like a trendy club in Las Vegas. Um, I say you might hear that word today because uh, it actually is around some uh, Let me give you some examples, all right? Um, this is a children's play center, one of those places with tunnels and ball pits, and one of those places, one of those places where if your kids are too young and they won't listen to you, you have to crawl into the tunnel to get them to come out. And it is no surprise that the owner decided to name this place Tohu Bohu Chaos. That fits a place like that. Um, this right here is a comic book. I don't know anything about comic books. This one's called Tohu Bohu. No idea what it's about. From judging from the cover and the subtitle, World Gone Wild, I think it's safe to say it's about chaos and confusion. Um, I want to try something to make sure you're getting it, some fill-in-the-blank sentences here, okay? Uh, I, just, I just need you to say tohu bohu when I point to you, all right? Um, so if we were talking one day and I said, man, um, I went to Costco on a Saturday. Bad idea. It was impossible to maneuver through the parking lot. It was one giant sea of tohu bohu, and you would all get exactly what I'm talking about. You know what I mean, right? Uh, or if I say to you, I was cooking the other night and I dropped a glass jar of pasta sauce on the ground and it exploded everywhere, my kitchen was... You can all relate to that. You know what that is. Or if I say, the other day at Warriors practice, Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole and it was... We all understand what that means, right? And where that's going to matter in a few minutes is this. Here's where this matters. Maybe your marriage today feels like a tohu bohu, or your job feels like tohu bohu, or you've got conflict with somebody and it feels like tohu bohu, or your health feels like tohu bohu, and you got to know the why of Genesis is all about that. Because verse 2 says, now the earth was chaos and waste. It was tohu bohu. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in Genesis 1-2, the Bible begins with God about to build something beautiful out of chaos and confusion. Now, why does this matter? Why are we going into such depth on chaos, confusion? Let me tell you about something that happened around 597 BC, about 60 years before Genesis was written down in the form we see it now. Have any of you ever heard of the Babylonian exile? I always hesitate to show maps of the ancient world when I'm trying to explain something, because I think the fastest way to put somebody to sleep is to show them a Bible map. But give me two minutes with a Bible map, and I promise you, this one is gonna be worth your time, okay? Right here, we're gonna circle it. Right here is where God's people are. Actually, this is Jerusalem, 597 BC. Jerusalem right there, that X. And just over here, to the east of Jerusalem, is this neighboring kingdom called Babylonia with its capital city, Babylon, and it's king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that is southern Iraq today, by the way. And Nebuchadnezzar was, spit, uh, was set on expanding his kingdom all the way over to Egypt. The problem was, there was this group of people right here in the way. So, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. What do I mean when I say he conquered Jerusalem? His armies laid siege to Jerusalem for over a year, a year, one year of fighting, killing person after person after person, citizens of Jerusalem. 
Then they destroyed the temple. Now, when I say that, I don't mean a church. I mean something that would be the equivalent of dropping a bomb on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the White House, really all of Washington, D.C. And then they took the survivors of this year-long siege, they took them captive back to Babylon with them, which was like 900 miles. That's long, that is longer than the distance from here to Vancouver, British Columbia. Walking 900 miles, and they left their home, their city, in ruins. Tohu bohu. Absolute chaos. Now, the Bible tells us that story, but actually other historical literature tells us that story as well. You don't have to find it in the Bible to know that that happened. And what we know is, for almost 50 years, the Jewish people who survived and were exiled to Babylon, they were there 50 years, multiple generations of Jewish people raised in Babylon, 50 years. Now, any of you who are first-generation Americans or second-generation or, or third-generation, you know that you or your parents or your grandparents didn't move here without bringing some of their heritage with them. But at the same time, they start to kind of figure out what America's like and, and take on some of those customs. Well, the Jewish people were now living in Babylon, but they were still very Jewish, and yet they were surrounded by a culture that was, that was really worshiping other gods and who adhered to, to very different religions, and among the many, many things that these Babylonians believed was a creation story about how the world came to be, a creation story called the Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish means when above. It is the story of what their Babylonian gods did that resulted in the world. Basically, here's how the story goes. A god, Marduk, has a real problem with his great-grandmother, Tiamat, the goddess of the sea, and they fight, and Marduk cuts her body in half at the end of the fight, actually filleting her from top to bottom, and he took half of her body, and he made a barrier to separate the waters, and that's how they got land. And then Marduk created the sun and the moon and the stars, and what we know is the Babylonians end up using those things as some sort of kind of magical religion even to try and tell the future, if you know how to read the stars. And in the Enuma Elish, the creation story, over seven tablets, things start to be made, trees and animals, uh, birds and fish and land animals, and then on the sixth tablet, humans are made. Actually, the way the story goes, Marduk creates a man from the blood of a slain god. And then he orders the man to work, to actually, actually the thought is, do the work of the gods so that we gods can all go rest. Um, humans in the Enuma Elish are kind of uh, mindless drones. They're created to be mindless drones to do God's grunt work for them, all these different gods. Now, this is the creation story that the Jewish people, and when I say that, the scholars and the priests and the parents and the, the kids and the grandparents, all of these people were exposed to in Babylon. The time that two gods fought each other, creating chaos, and then brought more chaos out of that, and then birthed people out of chaos so that people could do their work for them, all the while looking up at the stars, wondering if they could predict when the chaos would finally end. Chaos, chaos, chaos. And, and let me ask you a question. If you were a 12-year-old Jewish kid when Jerusalem was laid to ruin and you had been carried off to exile 900 miles away and you lived in this other country, a second-class citizen, for those 50 years you lived in chaos, 
because you had been pulled from your home. You'd seen your city burned, your temple destroyed, 50 years not knowing if you would ever see it again. Chaos and confusion. And here it is, 539 BC. All that stuff happened to you when you were 12. It's 50 years later. It's 539 BC. And Babylon sets you free to go home. At the end of 50 years, you have kids and grandkids, and you are essentially free to go back to where you were when you were 12. Go back home and rebuild Jerusalem. What is one of the first things you do? You say, we better write about our God and how we know this world came to be because that Enuma Elish is not our truth. We need to know the story, and our kids need to know the story, and our grandkids need to know the story of who God is and who we are. And Genesis 1 is the beginning of the story they start to tell. And unlike the Enuma Elish, where it begins with a battle between gods who can't get along, chaos, Genesis 1-2 says, now the earth was chaos and waste, tohu bohu darkness. And then verse three says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And right away, God speaks one sentence, one sentence. He just speaks. He doesn't have to go to war with other gods. There are no other gods. This God shows his invincible power just by speaking. And in one sentence, he overcomes chaos and he brings order. In the first three days, what we see, God makes ordered space. This is the story of God creatively ordering the chaos. Pete Enns uses this example in his book. It's so good. He says, imagine that it's game night and your family wants to play Monopoly, but your kitchen table is stacked with junk mail and backpacks and grocery lists and sticky stuff left over from breakfast. Your table is chaos. Hopefully you can relate to that idea. And, and, and you can't play the game until you make room for the board and stacks of money and a place for everybody to sit at the table. So the first thing you do is you clear off the mess so that you can get ready to play. You clear that space. And that is what God does in Genesis 1, the first three days, light and water and sky and land. And then after you've done that, that is when you start putting things in their place, the board and the bank and the cards and the thimble and the iron. By the way, who thought it would be cool to make Monopoly tokens that include a thimble and an iron? Anyway, that's what God does in days four through six. Let's talk about what we see. On day one, he creates light. On day two, he creates space for the sun and the moon and the stars. The, Bi the Bible calls it a vault and a sky, this space. But get this, it's not until day four that he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. All right, here's a, a real question. How can you have light on day one, let there be light, when there's no sun until day four? Anybody else have a problem with that? Yeah, you know why we ask that question? because we read this like it's a modern textbook. But it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be a story. It's an ancient story told from the perspective of ancient people with ancient understandings. Like, look, here's, here's another. It says in verse 16, 
God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. All right, we know it's talking about the sun and the moon, but we also know in 2022 that the moon does not give light, right? It reflects light from the sun. All right, does that mean that the Bible is stupid and shouldn't matter for your life? No, it means that the Israelites were ancient people. This is an ancient story, and in 539 BC, when somebody wrote this down, they did not know that the moon was reflecting light from the sun rather than being a light itself. And it means you've been asking Genesis to be something that it was never meant to be. The truth is, we need to cut the writers some slack because they were ancient people describing the universe in ancient terms as they understood it. Here are some wrong questions we ask. Is this a factual description of how the world came to be? Is this the correct order that God created this? Was this six literal days or six figurative days? Does each day count as a million years? Where is evolution in this process? Where are the dinosaurs? Was there an ice age reflected in this somewhere? All of those questions presume, they presume that the why for Genesis was to give you a modern textbook understanding of the world. That is not why this was written. No one was trying to explain the order of creation to their kids. They were trying to explain God brings order to our chaos. I will tell you, those wrong questions lead to inadequate answers that make us not want to read the Bible or to run from it or be embarrassed by it. And that is a shame because this chapter was never meant to give you those answers. This chapter was written to say to a people in chaos, our God is the chaos tamer. Our God can turn your 50-year chaos and, and take it and build a whole beautiful world out of it. Our God is greater than the God you heard about in Babylon, the one who just makes more chaos. Verse 14 says, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let those lights serve as, as, as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. In other words, this is kids, grandkids, you've been told in Babylon that the stars in the sky are there to help you predict the future if you have some special knowledge, but children, grandchildren, can I tell you why God put those stars there? To mark the seasons and the passing of time. God gave us those things to serve us, not so that we would worship them. In Babylon, they had heard that there were seven tablets, and on the sixth tablet, humans were created out of the blood of a slain God. You were made from murder. You were made from chaos. Oh, and by the way, you were made from the one thing that Marduk, that God, hates. You were made from his enemy. Genesis 2.7 says, to the contrary, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. To the contrary, you were made from a God, from our God, the one God, breathing his life into you. He put himself into you to bring you life. Oh, and after he did it, he said you were very good. Like, you are his best creation. You are his masterpiece. Actually, while we're on that, the Babylonian creation story had told them that, that we humans were made to serve the gods, to, to do the work the gods no longer want to do. Like we were made for slave labor. God's people are set free. 
They go home, they begin to tell their story, and they say that on the sixth day, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that we may rule over the fish. They, man, human, will rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That he put his likeness in his image in you. And every human is valuable because of it. And he gave you such high status. He asked you to rule over the rest of creation with him. Again, a wrong question. Where's evolution in the six-day creation story? This was not written to be a scientific explanation of how humans came to be. It was written to say, there is a creator who saw chaos and made something beautiful out of it, and he made us in his image. And you can ask Genesis 1 all sorts of questions from multiple perspectives. The scientific perspective that, that might suggest the Bible is a quaint relic of a silly ancient culture. Or the Christian apologist perspective that if the Bible says it, it must be scientifically and historically accurate. Either of those perspectives sell the Bible short. Both of them ask the wrong questions and lead to lots of bad answers. And I will just say, been a pastor a while, I spent lots of time in church trying to defend why the Bible says what it says, trying to make it work with these people's understanding and these people's understanding. And the truth is, when we ask those questions and debate those answers, they keep us from seeing the right lesson. The point of Genesis 1 was not to tell future generations exactly what order the world was made in, exactly how long it took. The point, the why, was to say, our God is different. Our God is not the God of the other nations. He is the chaos tamer. And because of that, this God and this God alone is worthy of worship. And we're about to go back to a city in ruins that we left 50 years ago. We left it in chaos and confusion. And kids, grandkids, the chaos tamer is about to build something beautiful again. Even today, even today, the point of Genesis 1, the reason that it is there all these years later is because God has a right lesson in it for you. You who can't pay your rent. You who are dealing with cancer. You who are trying to have a baby and it's not been happening. You who are out of work and out of ideas. You who have a marriage that is on the brink of divorce. You who have a child going through something that you cannot control and it is so hard. You who live in chaos today, your God is a chaos tamer. Your God can clear the table and build something beautiful in its place. Your God created you and said you are very good. Your God breathed his life into you. You bear his image. Your God has a purpose for you, and it's to join him in doing something he created you to do. And that is the lesson and the reason for Genesis 1. Derek is going to come out here and just close us in a song, and I want you to stay seated. We're not going to ask you to stand right away. He may have you stand halfway through, but, but right now, I, I just want him to sing these words over you while you ask yourself 
this question. Here's the question. Where do I need my chaos tamed? Where do I need my chaos tamed? We've all got some chaos. And even in a world that is beautiful, it's a wonderful creation, we know that chaos still abounds. We're going to talk about why that is next week. But for now, as you close your eyes, I just want to ask you to think about what chaos exists in your life. And I want you to listen to these words. Just one word, you calm the storm that surrounds me. Just one word, the darkness has to retreat. Just one touch, I feel the presence of heaven. And just one touch, my eyes were open to see. My heart can't help but believe. There's nothing that our God can't do. There's not a mountain that he can't move. Oh, praise the name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. And just one word, you hear what's broken inside me. Just one word, and you revive every dream. And just one touch, I feel the power of heaven. And just one touch, my eyes were open to see. My heart can't help but believe that there's nothing that our God can't do. It's not a prison wall he can't break through. Oh, prison name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. There's nothing that our God can't do. There's not a prison wall he can't break through. Oh, prison name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. Oh, out. Sing, I will believe for greater things. Here we go. Oh, I will believe for greater things. There's no power like the power of Jesus. Let faith arise. Come on. Let all agree. There's no power like the power of Jesus. I will believe. Come on. Greater things, there's no power like the power of Jesus. Let faith arise, let all agree, there's no power. 
Come on, sing, oh praise, oh praise. with us. Thanks for being with us today. If you're new here, we have a connection quarter set up right out in the courtyard. We would love to get a chance to know you. A lot of our pastors will be there hanging out. Thank you for joining us today. I pray you have an awesome week. We'll see you back here next Sunday. Amen.